The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Galwell. I'm Esteban Gomez. I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli. And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archaeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three, two, one, and liftoff. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. (laughs) (laughs) And we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors, from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds, are human acts of reclamation. That was according to the wishes of the descendant community. We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I'm speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity powerful yet untold examples of Native peoples resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of Indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. Throughout Season 1, I have spoken to seed keepers, farmers, historians, and community members. They have helped us understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. Today I'm speaking with one of my dearest friends, Rosebud Bear Schneider, Anishinaabe farmer food producer, and community organizer about the joys and challenges of revitalizing cultural foodways in the urban environment of the present day. So thank you for joining me today, Rosebud. Yeah, thank you. Before we start chatting, could you please introduce yourself any way you'd like? Sure. Ani buju bumasanokwe indishnikaz makododem wawiyatanang indonjaba anishnabe indaw. So my name is Rosebud Bear Schneider. It's my English name. I'm Bear Clan. I'm originally from Detroit, and I'm Anishinaabe. Thank you. Yeah. 
So as you said, you were born and raised in Detroit. Your family has a long history of activism and serving the community. That's also where we met and became involved in the indigenous food sovereignty movement together. I was wondering if you could start off talking a little bit about what was it like growing up as a Native person in Detroit? Oh, that's such a good question. (laughs) I feel like this has been coming back lately. So I've only known Detroit as my community. That's been my home. I've been a city girl forever. We did spend summers out on our res in Wisconsin. But being in the city, (laughs) my mother's family is Mexican Catholic. So we went to Catholic school. And I always say that my parents gave me a really good balance of like living in two worlds or multiple worlds. You know, Monday through Friday, we were like (laughs) in school, you know, Catholic school, living that city life. But mostly every Friday, we were packing up our van and hitting the road and going to like the nearest powwow or the furthest powwow. (laughs) We traveled all over the place. But as I've grown and learned and just experienced different things in my life, I've come to realize that being an, an urban native, you live in multiple worlds and you have to speak multiple languages and you don't always really know where you fit in. Sometimes you have to be, you have to be a chameleon. <laughs> if you want to interact and be a part of community, you kind of have to like learn how to blend in and learn how to, yeah, be a chameleon. <laughs> Were there many opportunities to practice culture or traditional food ways in the city? Back then, like, and this is something that I've had to kind of deal with. Like, I think I took a lot of stuff for granted. <laughs> and I do remember going to feasts and community gatherings and there was always corn soup or there was always fry bread or there was, you know, those tastes, those familiar different tastes. And I think you and I have experienced this together where we've gone to indigenous food summits or things like that. And we're, we're having these meals that these chefs prepared and like this, like taste comes back to you. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I remember, I remember drinking chaga tea. I remember this flavor or this smell from my childhood. So there was definitely food ways happening, especially like we've always have uncles that were hunters and fishers. So that kind of stuff was happening. But like in our family, like we weren't doing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So what brought you to doing this cultural food work then? What first brought you, I should say? Well, what first brought me, and I want to take it all the way back because I have two children. They're 12 and 14 now. And when I had my daughter, there was like no thought in my mind that I would breastfeed her. And when we talk about food sovereignty, like we have to talk about breastfeeding first. We have to talk about that. That's our first food. And having that realization and like even being able to be a breastfeeding educator sparked something within me for sure. And, you know, my work at the agency in Detroit doing community work, and advocating for folks just like me, that really set the <laughs> set my trail ablaze. And anytime I was able to connect with anything that was food related, I was on it. I remember telling a supervisor back then that I just want to grow in the garden. And she always made sure that I had opportunities to be out in the garden and helping other programs and things like that. So I owe it to folks like you and other of our friends that are doing this work that have really like supported that vision for myself before I knew I had that, that passion. Yeah. I always love (laughs) when you share that about how your role as a mother and breastfeeding was 
your entry point to food sovereignty work because our first foods are so important to this work. But it's also, I feel like, at least at this point, one of the least talked about. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's so critical. And so kind of at that point, I mean, you know this story, but for folks listening, that's when we met and began working together. The agency that you reference is the Native Health Clinic that we both worked at. And over several years, we worked in partnership with community members to build a food sovereignty program called Sacred Roots, which aimed at creating spaces and opportunities for Detroit's Native community to both practice and preserve their traditional foodways in that urban landscape. And we did this through hosting gardening workshops and cooking classes, focusing on our Great Lakes foods, starting a small seed library, and hosting a variety of traditional skills workshops and seasonal feasts with the community. Since then, we've both moved into new spaces and roles within the food sovereignty movement, but the program that we started continues on. We've both seen the seeds that we sowed in the community continue to grow, which is something we've spoken about that brings us so much joy. Amazing. (laughs) I was wondering if you could give some examples of how either you or other community members are continuing to revitalize and practice traditional foodways in the city. Yeah. So I think about all of that work that you just spoke about often. I moved out of the city about three years ago, right before the pandemic started. And (laughs) I still keep in touch with all of the folks that were in that group that was all learning together and all growing together and building something that that was so important to us. And in that time, all of them created their own gardens and really stepped into their own path about reconnecting and revitalizing what's true in their heart. And I love watching it. One of our dear sisters, Kirby, is, you know, (laughs) phenomenal chef, phenomenal farmer, really doing great work in the city, all of the individual folks that are growing together, but also still strengthening that bond that we help create. And I think it's just so beautiful when we talk about food sovereignty. That's what that looks like. All of us like in our spaces doing that work and carrying on that knowledge, right? One of the main things that's happening right now, we've learned like through the seasons, everything changes and We're heading into spring and it's maple tapping season. It's starting to happen downstate. It's definitely starting to happen up here now. You can tell yesterday was super warm where everybody was like, go tap them trees. (laughs) You better go check. It's time to start doing that. So it's, you know, maple season. I've noticed a lot of us folks like grabbing onto that part, really taking ownership in whatever way you can commune with those trees, whether it's in your backyard, it's a couple or you're going out into a park and (laughs) tapping 80 trees. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, five, eight years ago, we might have heard of, you know, one small group of people doing that, like tapping the trees. But it's really, it seems like there are multiple small groups doing that now, like throughout the area, which is really something beautiful to see people both carrying on that practice, but Also, that responsibility and care for our relatives, the maple trees. I'm going to come back to the maple tapping in just a second, but what are some of the challenges of doing this important food work in the city? Oh, (laughs) 
I know, I know. <laughs> we could talk a lot about oh, this with our yeah, the years that we've worked together. But sure. what are some of the things you would like to share with folks? Like when you think about the unique experience of doing this work in an urban setting, what are some of the challenges? Some of us have been so far removed from it and can't even wrap our minds around what that looks like. And I think that there's definitely some fear that comes along with when you hear food sovereignty or what does that even look like? And I think that some of the work that you and I were doing is getting folks comfortable with this, what it looks like, and that it's not, <laughs> it's not, you know, unattainable, right? I think that is a huge challenge, especially when you're trying to get folks to eat healthy. <laughs> we're living in a food system that doesn't really care <laughs> about our health. You know, it's a capitalistic food system. I think there are lots of systems that we have to navigate that don't speak the language that we're speaking, right? That's a huge, 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 huge challenge. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by speaking the same language? Sure. <laughs> you know, what I, what I mean is the memory that comes, <laughs> the memory that comes to mind is we spend all this time, and when I say we, I literally mean you and me. <laughs> we spend all this time educating ourselves and reconnecting to the land and what this means and really like deepening that relationship. But then when we, we know what we want, how we want to deliver that to the community. And oftentimes it's hard to articulate that or even explain that to a larger system that doesn't know what it means to like do this spiritual work and connect spiritual work with food work. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I'll think i say it. I'll, I'll leave it there. <laughs> I yeah. can say so much more. <laughs> that makes complete sense. It is coming from very different perspectives and worldviews. And those worldviews influence how you relate to the work itself and all of the relations that we're in this work with both our human relatives and our non-human relatives. You know, I've sat and like shed tears talking about this stuff and experiencing things. It's going to be hard for us to even like explain how this happened. And I was recently listening to the conversation you had with Shelly and how she was talking about listening to Rowan. I'm like, we were there. We were listening to that. <laughs> we were right in that, in that room listening to the same thing she was listening to. And that to me, like, the reach that that work has had and the impact that it has had on all of us is, is amazing. It certainly is. So recently there was an incident involving the Detroit Police Department where they interrupted a sugar bush or maple syrup tapping gathering. Before we talk about that specific incident, could you provide us with a bit more context of what the gathering was for and what's involved in Sugarbush? Yeah, so Sugarbush is just a term that I've grown up with, that I've learned. And that's just what we call <laughs> the space that we are going into, you know, to set up camp in order to tap, boil, and process that maple sap into syrup or sugar. Sugarbush can also be the season that we are doing the maple tapping. And in Michigan, that can vary from February all the way to April, depending on what's happening in weather. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit more about like what is happening in the weather? What are the signs for those that haven't been involved <laughs> with Sugarbush before? 
what's happening out in the world to let you know that it's time? The frigid cold that we've been having, that we've all been complaining about, like we want that to happen. (laughs) We want things to freeze for a period of time. And then what we're looking for is freezing at night and then warming up. So above freezing in the daytime. And that in downstate has happened, is happening now. And then in Northern Michigan, it's starting to happen. I think, you know, mid Michigan, it's climbing. We're usually like two weeks apart from each other. And with climate change, that also affects these seasons as well. But you want things to freeze at night and you want it to warm up during the day so that sap flows. And when you're tapping that tree, the telltale sign is that <laughs> as soon as you as soon as you pull that tap out or pull that screw out, that sap is flowing. You know, it's ready to go. <laughs> so then that period of time usually, I don't know, it all depends on the weather. We tapped in Detroit two weeks now. It's been two weeks, and I think they've collected over 250 gallons already. And what we're looking for, it started to warm up down there. You don't want your sap to spoil. And then once the buds on the trees start popping, then your season is over because that'll change the flavor. Yeah, the sugar content. So how much sap do you really need? That's a lot. That is a lot. But from what I've learned is that 50 gallons of sap equals one gallon of syrup. Wow. So (laughs) depending on how much syrup you like or how much sugar you like, that depends on how many trees you want to tap. Usually for a family supply for a year, so family like four to six people, you want to tap at least 40 trees and that should give you a a decent amount. It all just depends on your season and and your manpower too. Like you don't want to go out and tap a hundred trees and then it's only you hauling all that, (laughs) hauling all that syrup, which is why we call it sugar bush in the season. Like this is the time for families to go out into the bush and set up camp and they would be there for a full month or two months doing that work. But that's, that's what we did. Yeah. It's an example of one of those really labor intensive food ways where community would come together at certain times of year to engage in that work together and then to share the community wealth, so to speak. I don't know if you got to try that sugar and syrup that they made last year, but it was delicious. It was. (laughs) I know about maple sugar. I've spent my last three years making (laughs) maybe maple sugar and that sugar was delicious. So is there anything else? So you talked about like the harvesting and then what's the next step, I guess, in the process after you harvest? Collecting buckets pretty much every day, gathering it into a tank or whatever collection system you're working in. And then you start to boil. You want a good evaporator or equipment to burn that water content down. At that point, it's syrup or you can take it all the way down to sugar. Sugar will last longer. It's got the longest shelf life and Traditionally, that's what our people did was they made sugar. I think it was an accident. (laughs) I think they cooked it too long and it turned into sugar. (laughs) But they learned that it's easy to travel with. It has a longer shelf life. You're not carrying around gallons of of syrup on your G-mon. But (laughs) (laughs) So... I guess set the stage for us, this, you know, moving into talking about what happened a couple of weeks ago in Detroit, yeah. set the scene, what was happening? 
what was the community doing and, and then what transpired with the police? They were just some peaceful Indians hanging out in the bush, having a fire, <laughs> weren't doing nothing wrong. <laughs> For the record. <laughs> but no. So, you know, we knew this season was coming up. We had been talking about this for weeks and there is a planning committee that's working together. So we, you know, picked that day. We called in one of our spiritual leaders, Jefferson Ballou. The other thing that I don't think any of us have realized is that this was the first time that many of us had come together as a community in ceremony since the pandemic started. It was the first time I had seen quite a few folks. So that was really important to me. We got there about four o'clock. It was daylight out. We're in a city park called Rouge Park. So if you're familiar with the city, then you know, <laughs> then you know the reputation that the park has about that. I do want to say that the Detroit Sugarbush Project has been going on for about four years. Legally, three years. <laughs> four years was a rogue operation. But since that inception, the organizers have worked with the city, have worked with the Black to Land organization, the Friends of the Rouge River, and the National Wildlife Federation, all in support of what we wanted to achieve and ongoing, right? Many of those folks in these organizations and in these city departments overlap. So we gather together. You know, anytime that a harvest is happening or a season is beginning, there's ceremony that happens. I won't speak to specifics or anything like that. Of course, in the beginning of things, we want to set good intentions. We want to give thanks to these gifts that we're asking for to bless the work that we're doing and bless ourselves and, you know, center us and and start things in a good way. That's what we intended to do on that Friday evening. We had a sacred fire lit. Jefferson was giving his teachings. He had his bundle out. There was about 25 of us that were gathered there. It was a really beautiful evening. And many of us are city kids and we're kind of joking and remarking on the fact that, hey, it's kind of funny being in this park at this time of the day. <laughs> you know, this is not a, not a normal thing for us, right? Can you speak just before you go on, for those that aren't familiar with Rouge Park, like why would it be unusual to be there at that time of day in that particular park? So, you know, like every urban center, <laughs> there's lots of different activities happening. Some reputations are true about Detroit and some are not. <laughs> I love my city. Let me just tell you that. <laughs> but, you know, Rouge Park is, and most city parks, especially Rouge Park is a very large park in the city, is known for, you know, unsavory behavior sometimes. There is police presence. I was always taught, you don't want to go hanging out over there. <laughs> My dad was pretty explicit about that. <laughs> don't catch yourself in these areas. Always steer clear. Don't go looking for trouble, that kind of stuff. In that context, you know, we're out here. We have permission. We've been doing this for three years. <laughs> We all felt really comfortable in those spaces. And we were in a large group. Now, if it was just like one or two of us, probably wouldn't be a good idea to be out there <laughs> in the middle of the night having a bonfire. But, you know, we were heading towards the feast time. Actually, I think at that moment we had broke for a feast and we noticed police lights at the road. And I thought maybe someone's just getting pulled over because that <laughs> that is also not unusual. When you see cars parked on the side of the road, specifically in that park, 
the assumption is that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing. So we kind of laughed it off like, oh, somebody got pulled over. It's not for us. Then another, <laughs> another car arrived and then another car arrived and then another car arrived. At the end, there was seven cop cars and a helicopter. One of the organizers, a couple of them, headed toward the road. We're only about maybe like 100 feet, 200 feet from the road to the spot that we were in. So it's not super far. You can see everything. So they went to the road to check out what was happening. I guess they were in response to some calls that they saw a fire. We were still down at the fire when half of them went to the road (laughs) and we noticed the helicopter with their spotlight on us. And they stayed on us for, for quite some time. At that point, I was between the road and the bush and there was four to six officers coming down to where we were at. Now, they were not regularly dressed like normal police uniforms. They were dressed in their like tactical special ops gear, different color uniform, way more protection on. And they, at that point, I was informed that they're making us leave. They made us put out the fire and we have to leave. And then somebody else told us, yeah, they said that if we don't leave, we're getting arrested. So there was a lot of like miscommunication happening from the enforcement at the road and enforcement at the fire. The folks at the fire did not want to hear anything from us at all. They wanted us to be quiet and comply to what they were telling us to do. Pretty threatening, pretty forceful. Nobody was injured or harmed physically, (laughs) but it was very, very traumatizing. There were children at the fire. There were elders at the fire. And again, we maintain like we have permits. We're allowed to do this. You know, (laughs) we did follow protocol. They told us that we weren't supposed to be there after dark, but the actual city ordinance in that park is 10 p.m. that the park closes. I think it went on for a good 45 minutes. It seemed to it seemed to drag on for a while. At the end, one sergeant stayed and took our complaints, like our counts of it all. So she said she would be making a police report also on our behalf. And then the next morning, one of the participants also made a police report to that specific precinct. You said that the next day that another report was made or another complaint. What has been the community response since then? So that evening, when all of it was happening, there were a couple of participants put their cameras on. I think somebody went live and somebody else went onto TikTok. And that TikTok video was shared all over the place. The immediate response was like outrage. (laughs) And that's it continues to be the, the response that why would this be happening? This response, this police response was extreme (laughs) and pretty unnecessary, especially because we had been there since during the day. They had at least four hours to come out (laughs) and say, hey, what's going on? What's happening? But 14 cops and a helicopter, I, I, again, like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I still want somebody to make that make sense for me. (laughs) The support for sure has been so overwhelming and again, like comforting, like I'm glad that people are upset for us and that support the actual work that we're doing As we had to go back out there the next day and pick up where we left off. Like there was a sacred fire that wasn't put out properly. We needed to close things in a good way. We still had to tap trees. <laughs> we still had, we still had a lot of work to do. We still had that whole weekend planned for us. But yeah, the support has been 
amazing. You know, don't read the comment section of any any <laughs> any report that's been out or any you know article that's been published in like mainstream media. But there's going to be folks that don't understand why we just can't follow the rules and <laughs> you know misunderstand us always. But that speaks to what we go through as Native people, whether you're in a city or out in a city, we're exercising our rights, our treaty rights, our rights as like Native people. <laughs> and at the end of the day, we're just trying to make syrup. Like we're not, <laughs> we're not hurting anybody. I think the argument can be made that we're actually helping these trees and helping this land and helping our people. Again, we're going to keep moving forward. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. But they haven't seen the last of us. We're going to keep doing it. <laughs> when you think about the relationship with the city and the police department moving forward, what would be your hope? Yes, this has been a discussion that's been ongoing with us. And the bare minimum, <laughs> I appreciate that there is an apology put out. But it was also a really great example of what gaslighting looks like. <laughs> like, oh, I'm sorry, but you shouldn't have done this type of thing. And again, put the blame on us. I think at the bare minimum, cultural competency training and awareness needs to happen across the cities, but specifically with these police departments, specifically with those officers that were down at that fire that could have been handled so much differently. You would never think to go into a church or a mosque or any other religious dwelling but because natives are outside around a fire. Now, <laughs> also the comments been made that they didn't know what we were doing because we weren't in our cultural gear. I, I, I don't really know what. <laughs> Folks, he has seen me right now, but I'm shaking my head. I mean, I don't know what they expect us to look like. Like we left our breech cloths at home and didn't wear our headdresses. Like, I, I don't know, but a few of the women had ribbon skirts on which we all know in our culture, especially right now, that is a very significant piece of clothing that is worn that signifies that we are, <laughs> we are doing something, you know, connected to our culture. Again, cultural awareness, we want those officers to be reprimanded. We want better communication between these city departments and these organizations, specifically BIPOC organizations that are working <laughs> with the land and out in these these spaces. That in and of itself is like a revolutionary act and an act of resistance and resilience that brown people <laughs> can be out in nature. I don't think most people really understand what that means for us to be out, which is why organizations like Black to the Land exist because they need that connection as well. And to do it and to be out and experience the beauty of nature and not be persecuted or <laughs> chastised or overly policed, right? And there's so many beautiful examples of that revolutionary work happening in Detroit, but there are still so many challenges we see with this example. I mean, it's like I'm saying, you know, we have to operate in systems that don't understand us and that don't want us there. So <laughs> what do we do? You know? Yeah. It's, it's a challenge. It's a struggle. So thinking about that, what keeps you going when you face resistance like this? What gives you strength? We've been taught that we have to think about the next seven generations. 
And what I keep saying is that I don't want my great-great-grandchildren to have to revive these ways, to have to say, oh, I think my great-grandma did this, or <laughs> and have to keep reconnecting. And I think as a mother, like, those seeds, my, <laughs> I'm already going to be somebody's ancestor. And those seeds are going to be planted in the next few generations. I just really want a better world for our kids and their kids and their kids. I want to be a good ancestor. I want those kids to look back and say, my great, great grandma, this is what she did. And this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And, you know, we're living in such a scary time that we don't know what that future looks like, but we can't let that like darkness like consume us and just roll over. I mean, it's all this work, especially, you know, in these last couple of years, what's happening in native country all over Turtle Island, there's a lot of us are waking up. A lot of us are finding our strength to keep fighting. I know I'm not alone <laughs> doing this work and that keeps me going. Yeah. Definitely true for me, too. So why is food sovereignty important to you personally? I know that's a huge question, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, that's such a good question, and it's it's loaded for sure. (laughs) This work has given me such purpose and such an understanding of who I am as an Anishinaabekwe. All of us, you know, go through a period of time that we're lost connecting with our seed relatives and communing with the land and connecting with folks that are doing the same work and that are driven by this passion as well. Like one of my favorite things is being in community, whether we're cooking corn or tapping trees or just sitting by a fire or whatever it is, like what happens in that community is so special and For me, that's why I love this work so much. It's not about the destination. It's about who you're doing it with. That's it for me. I think that is a huge part of success in whatever you're doing is like, you have to love what you're doing, but you have to also love like who you're doing that with. And then that space that you're creating. I don't think a lot of people really understand that or make a space for that. You have to have that mutual respect with folks that you're doing this stuff with. Certainly. And that's a perfect segue to my next question, because I want to know, who are you carrying with you while you do this work? I know for many of us, it's multiple folks, but are there folks that really stick out in your mind that are in your mind and heart frequently when you're doing this? You're going to make me cry. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) you know always my kids and my mother and my father are always in my heart always for me sisterhood is such such a strong medicine for me and I I carry my sisters with me all the time you and I have connected in so many ways and have grown together I carry you in my heart and I carry our other sister Sarah in my heart and our sister Stephanie in our heart You and I joke about, and I think most people that know us know that we talk about the three sisters a lot and that philosophy and how that philosophy drives the work that we do and how we view community and that interdependence and that relationship with those seeds in that garden and how that can be translated to to our beings and to our relationships with each other. 
and how interconnected and how interdependent we can be. We can all thrive alone, <laughs> but we can thrive better when we're together. And that's always something that that I hold all the time. Yeah, that sisterhood piece is definitely something that I carry very close to my heart as well. All right, last question. I'm inviting you to a feast honoring all of our relations. What are you bringing and why? I am bringing tamales. So you know that I've been working on my recipe for a long time and my relationship with making tamales. My grandmother, my abuelita, she showed me how. And I was really scared for a while to like bring that out. And I don't want the judgment because she'll come back and judge me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She won't. But I have made tamales before and I'm like, I'll make them vegan so everybody can eat them. But for this gathering, I'll make the good tamales with the lard. <laughs> and what, what type of filling? So I made bison tamales recently this past summer. And those were phenomenal. <laughs> And I don't know if you ever get this, but when you're cooking all day and it's time to eat, you don't want to eat because you've been cooking that food all day. That's usually what happens to me. But at the end of that day, I sat down and had some of those. I'm like, oh, man, this lard, <laughs> this is it. This is it. This is it right here. <laughs> so, yeah, tamales is what I'm bringing. <laughs> Well, Miigwech, thank you for generously sharing your time, experiences, and knowledge with us, Rosebud. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's such an honor. <laughs> thank you. Miigwech. The Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the Indigenous communities across Turtle Island are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral food bays. In this space, we will talk about indigenous food bays as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Thank you for listening to part two of Self-Determination, episode 10 of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. Chimi Gwetch, a big thank you to Rosebud Bear Schneider. This is our last episode for season one. Together with our honored guests, we have discussed some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the Indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. As a whole, they've given us a critical understanding of the journey that led us here today. We'll be back soon with Season 2, featuring new guests and powerful stories from today's Indigenous food movement. Together, we will dive deeper into the work Indigenous communities are doing to preserve and revitalize their place-based cultures and the role their foodways are playing in this important, life-sustaining work. If you would like to learn which Indigenous community's homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is n-a-t-i-v-e-l-a-n-d.ca. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editors Kat Salinas and Bethany Sands, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer and music designer Max Kettlechuk, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, production assistant Melissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. 
You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, bye my pee.